Uh, But this morning I get to kick off our new sermon series in the book of Genesis, which uh, I've appropriately subtitled The Beginning. Genesis is, of course, the beginning of the Bible. Uh, It's the first book of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew title of this book comes from the opening word in it, Bereshit, which translates as the beginning, the origins, the genesis The authorship of the book of Genesis along with the other four opening books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are uh, traditionally uh, ascribed to Moses, God's chosen prophet, who in the 15th century before Christ helped bring God's people out of slavery in Egypt before receiving God's revelation of the law and of the, the origins of the universe Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that he received from God while leading the Israelites through the wilderness in Sinai. Now, not surprisingly, in modern times, Moses' authorship of Genesis has been called into question by historical critical scholarship, uh, uh, scholars who are skeptical of Moses' ability to know with any degree of certainty about these events, which occurred thousands or even Millions or billions of years prior to Moses' life, depending on your interpretation of the dating. And so all of that really gets us to the heart of what we might call the creation controversy uh, for this morning. Not only these questions surrounding the authorship of Genesis, but more importantly, its genre. Are chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis sometimes deemed prehistory? Are they myth or are they history? Do they reflect some sort of legendary pseudo-history that developed over many generations in Israel, the ancient lore of an uneducated people trying to explain their own origins, or do they record actual historical events? What are modern enlightened people, such as ourselves, supposed to make of talking snakes and primitive wooden boats allegedly capable of housing every species of animal on earth, and humans who live to be 969 years old. I mean, should Genesis be understood symbolically, figuratively, allegorically, or is it literal? I want to offer us three prefatory guardrails before we even dive into the text together this morning that I hope will keep us from running amok in our study these next few weeks. Number one, we need to recognize that faithful Christians can and will disagree over some of these details. West Hills intentionally does not take an official church stance in our statement of faith on the age of the earth. I know for a fact that we have young earth creationists Uh, who worship with us at West Hills, who think the world is 6,000 years old and not a day older, and we have old earth creationists who think it's 4.5 billion years old. Heck, we may even have some uh, theistic evolutionists going undercover here at West Hills. And while our answers to these kinds of questions are no doubt important, I want to make it clear that most of these issues, many of them at least, are not gospel issues. They are not of absolute core central importance. If you think back and and look back to the slide here again of my, my levels of importance chart, the age of the earth is a contested issue within Christian circles. Now, 
there are other related doctrines that are more central, like the fact that we are all descendants of a historical Adam and Eve from whom we have inherited both the image of God and original sin. That's a gospel issue, okay? If this is like a a game of theological Jenga, if you pull out that block, the historical Adam and Eve block, I'm not sure the Tower of Christianity can still stand. But we need to be careful when we're studying Genesis and the creation account in chapter 1 in particular to acknowledge that many of these details are not so clear-cut and that different interpretations really are possible here. Number two, we need to be wary of overestimating the explanatory power of science for three reasons. Number one, science can explain how things happened, but not why they happened. Science can show us uh, evidence that there was a Big Bang 13 billion years ago. What it can't do is explain who pulled the trigger or why. And so we need to recognize the limitations of science as a discipline. The second reason we need to be leery is that science changes every day. Science's explanation for the origins of the universe is very different today than it was 100 or even 10 or 20 years ago. It wasn't until uh, 1929 that Edwin Hubble confirmed what the Bible has always affirmed, which is that the universe has not, in fact, existed forever as scientists previously postulated, but rather came into existence at a distinct time in the past. And so when it comes to some of these other theories that appear to be at odds with what we find in Scripture, God's inerrant word, we might do well to just cool, cool our jets for a minute, quit fighting, and realize that you know, we can just simply wait for science to catch up with the truth of the Bible. As God says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Uh, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Which brings us to our third and biggest reason to be skeptical of science. And that is that for most of the last 2,000 years, the leading scientists of the day conceived of their work as God's work. You think of Sir Isaac Newton, of Galileo. In fact, the birth of what we now know as modern science was actually sponsored by the church because Psalm 19.1 reveals that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so we should expect to find God's fingerprints everywhere in creation. And we do, and discovering those prints is an act of worship. And it was for early scientists, and yet with the dawn of the Enlightenment in the 17th and and early 18th centuries, the entire philosophical approach of, of science as a discipline began to shift such that instead of assuming God's existence and setting out to prove how he works, science now demands that we start with the assumption that God doesn't exist and that any possibility of supernatural divine agency and intervention is off the table, and we must not resort to such primitive uh, and childish explanations as a cosmic creator for why things are the way they are. And so we Christians need to acknowledge that, and we need to be careful about how much we want to stretch our biblical worldview to accommodate for even the best theories of a discipline whose very starting point nowadays is the a priori assumption that there is no God. It is inherently at odds with our own worldview. Now, that said, my third prefatory guardrail before we dive in is that we also don't want to 
underestimate the value of the scientific evidence either because creation really is God's handiwork. And so whether the atheist scientist realizes it or not, and by the way, I should say, not all scientists are atheists. I mean, we've got many sort of covert, secret, uh, agent, Christian scientists right here at uh, West Hills, as a matter of fact. But, but even the atheists don't realize that they're actually just discovering God's handiwork, his fingerprints. All truth is God's truth. It's not the Bible or science. It's the Bible and creation. God reveals himself to us in his word and in the world. Word and world. We call this special revelation, scripture, and general revelation, nature. And it's because of this general revelation, uh, nature, that, that the Apostle Paul can claim in Romans chapter 1, what can be known about God is plain to all because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that all are without excuse. And God's invisible attributes are a great segue uh, because before I spend any more time in my sermon expositing the, the, the nature of the relationship between the Bible and science, let me just tell you a few of the questions that I will not be answering in this morning's message. I will not answer for you whether or not Christians can believe in evolution, or should we believe in evolution? Where did light come from on day two if there was no stars yet? Uh, how did plants grow on day three before the sun was created? Uh, why is the moon called a light on day four when we know that it actually just reflects light? Were these great sea creatures on day five actually the dinosaurs? These are all fascinating questions with even more fascinating answers depending on your interpretation of the science and of scripture. But none of those are going to be the focus of today's sermon. Uh, I am planning to do a midweek uh, podcast uh, teaching on our Ask the Pastor podcast where I will address the question of whether Christians should believe in evolution, but not here in the sermon. Why? Because the aim of preaching is to explain and apply the word of God for the people of God. And so if I understood Genesis to be written as primarily a science textbook, as primarily a history textbook, then I would do a lot of academic teaching this morning. But I don't think that's actually the primary purpose of Genesis 1. I think that Genesis 1 serves primarily as a preface to an autobiography. And as such, its purpose is to introduce us to the main character and the protagonist of this story that is going to be unfolding over the next 66 books and the next 2,334 pages of Scripture. In short, Genesis 1 is all about God. That is your big picture takeaway this morning. Genesis 1 is about God. So, instead, I want to outline for you this morning 20, yes, 20, that's going to be five today and 15 more next Sunday, 20 attributes of God that we find in this opening chapter of Genesis alone, and then end by considering three quick application points for us. How do we apply a text like this one that in reality is intentionally focused not on us but on God? All right, so 
With that said, wherever you are, presumably sitting there at home or at your kitchen counter, on your couch, laying down in bed, let's restore some sense of normalcy this morning to our Sunday morning routine right now. And would you stand with me as you're able, out of respect for uh, the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through Genesis chapter 2, actually, verse 3. Uh, we're going to spill over a little into chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is inerrant, that it is without error, that it is trustworthy, that it is good, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness, that we may be made perfect, lacking in nothing. Father, we pray that now as we devote ourselves to the study of these truths from your word, you would do just that. You would um, further sanctify us For your glory we pray, Father, and in your name, amen. You may be seated at home. So uh, number one, the first attribute of God that we find here in Genesis chapter one, right in verse one, is that God is preeminent, preeminent. So kids, if you are still following along, I know I've probably used a lot of big words that already that mom and dad have uh, maybe had to, to pause and hopefully define for you, but I'll take this one for them. To say that God is preeminent is to affirm that he is prominent or distinguished above and before all others, superior, surpassing. Okay, so we read, in the beginning, God. The Bible is not first and foremost a story about us, creation, human history, your life, your tiny place in history, in this world, is not ultimately about you. It's all about God. All, right? all of this is from him, and all of it is for him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. God is both the author and the aim of the entire universe. And he is undisputedly the aim of this entire first chapter of Genesis. God's name, Elohim, is used 35 times in these first 34 verses alone. This chapter is all about God. God is not only preeminent, he is also preexistent, right? In the beginning, God. Science now admits that the universe wasn't infinite and eternal, as they once thought. It began to exist 13 billion years ago. Christians know how. God spoke, and it was so. He spoke the universe into existence. The scientists will ask, well, then who created God? If everything has a cause, where did your God come from? And the Bible gives us the answer right here in verse 1. In the beginning, God. He already existed. Before time and space, 
God simply was and is and is to come. Revelation 1.8, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It is inherent in his, in his very name, his personal name, Yahweh, which we won't be introduced to until Genesis chapter 2, but Yahweh simply means I am. God is the source of all being. He is the reason there's something rather than nothing. He's the reason for everything. God is preeminent. Ephesians 4, 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all. Attribute number two, God is creator. In the beginning, God did what? He created. God created. The Hebrew verb for create here, bara, is found over 50 times in the Old Testament, and every single time, God is the subject. Only God can bara. He is uniquely creator in a way that you and I are not and cannot be. It is part of what sets God apart from us as holy as worthy of our worship, our affection, our devotion. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you because of it. Isaiah 40, verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing, not a single star. And Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is creator, and he is worthy to be praised as creator. Number three, God is powerful. We're still just in verse 1, folks. In the beginning, God created what? He created the heavens and the earth. Now, you need to know the Hebrew phrase, the heavens and the earth, is just an idiom that simply means everything. It's another way of saying God created everything that we see and don't see, visible and invisible. Scientists today estimate we have only discovered about 4% of our universe. Now, the irony of that is that the more we discover, the more we come to realize we have yet to discover. Like as, as soon as we uh, get a tiny glimpse of yet another distant galaxy, we realize that even more lies within it and beyond it that we can't even discover and see yet. And so in 10 years, the reality is the estimate will probably go down. We'll probably likely realize we've discovered even less than 4% of our universe, just a fraction so why would God create stuff that we can't even see? I think it's to remind us of just how small we are and just how big and awesome and powerful he is. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too hard for you. You can do all things. Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? No, of course not. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, 
What is man that you're mindful of him? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Folks, our God holds all power. And so we take comfort in that truth this morning, friends. With everything going on in the world right now, we rest in the assurance that our God is sovereign and he holds all power. Number four, God is dynamic. Dynamic means pertaining to or characterized by energy or effective action, especially as it affects development. The idea here is one of God's progressive action. He is advancing the development of the created order. We hear in verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, some Christians picture every creative act in Genesis 1 as a creatio ex nihilo, a creation out of nothing. Yet, as commentator Alan Ross notes, verse 2 here describes a chaos. There was a waste and void Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The clauses in verse 2 here are apparently circumstantial to verse 3, telling uh, the world's condition when God began to renovate it. It was a chaos of wasteness, emptiness, and darkness. Such conditions, Ross says, would not have resulted from God's creative work. Rather, in the Bible, they are symptomatic of sin. And so Ross explains, we must read a gap between The first two verses, verse 1 and verse 2 here of Genesis 1, allowing for the fall of Satan. We know of Satan's fall from Isaiah chapter 14 and other passages and the entrance of sin into the world even before Adam and Eve had their fall. This is the pre-fall fall, the fall of Lucifer from heaven, one of God's angels. And that fall introduced sin and caused chaos into the world. And so Understood rightly, verse 1 now serves as an introduction, an abstract of sorts, to orient us to the rest of chapter 1. Moses employs the same narrative structure uh, with his genealogies and later chapters in Genesis. Terence Fredheim provides additional evidence for this interpretation, that God is not just creating, but actually developing his creation over time by pointing us ahead to God's command in verse 28, that man subdue the earth. Fretheim notes uh, this implies that good does not mean perfect or static or in no need of development. God can deem creation good even while it's still a work in progress. Consider again verse 31, when God for the first time calls creation very good. That suggests development, right? It was good, now it's very good. He's developing creation. Now, I know some Christians get real antsy about any possible whiff of evolution in God's design of creation because it implies that God didn't create everything perfect in the first place. It raises an interesting theological question for us, actually. Which is better, a God so perfect he won't even allow for any darkness, any chaos, any sin, He only oversees and orchestrates perfection or a God so redemptive that he can and does allow for evil and brokenness in order to prove his ultimate power over it by bringing forth light from darkness, beauty from ashes, wholeness from brokenness, good from evil, redemption from even the worst that we see all around us in the world, even our worst. A God who can take even my worst sin and transform it 
and use even that to accomplish his own higher, better purposes. Biblically speaking, there's no use even debating which of those two gods is better because Scripture is very clear about which God exists. And it's the picture that we get here in Genesis 1. God is redemptive. And praise God that he is, because otherwise, he never would have created free-willing creatures capable of sin like you and I in the first place. And finally, for this morning, the last attribute of God, number five, is that God is involved. He's involved. We read in verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, God is intimately involved, and God is going to get even more actively involved in chapter 2, where we'll get the details on how God created man specifically. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. See, the Bible leaves no room for the God of deism, some utterly transcendent God who was curious enough to create the universe as some sort of divine experiment, but then who quickly lost interest and certainly cannot be bothered by any of our concerns today. No, the God of the Bible is active. He's caring. He is intimately involved with every detail of his creation. He lovingly engages with us. He cared enough to not only be actively involved in creation in the beginning, but he was also personally involved in his work of salvation 2,000 years ago. God got so involved that he took on human flesh himself as the person of Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice in your place and my place in his death on the cross for the sins of fallen man. And as if that weren't enough, God is still presently involved through his enduring work of the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and our need for a Savior, opening our eyes to see the truth about ourselves and the truth about Jesus, and then actually calling us, drawing us to himself and performing that supernatural spiritual act of rebirth. In all of those ways, at every turn, God is and must be involved. Friends, our God cares. He gets involved because he cares. He cares enough to number the, the hairs on your head, Luke 12, 7. He cares enough to feed the birds, Matthew 6. And so you can rest assured that he is still involved and he still cares for you today regardless of what the news cycle might hold for us tomorrow. And so to conclude our time together this morning, how do we apply all of this in our day-to-day -day lives what, is, what do we do practically with any of this? I'll leave you with three quick take-home or keep-at-home, as the case may be, take-home points. So number one, we should worship God. We worship God. Many of you will be familiar with the ACTS model of prayer, A-C-T-S, and it would be really easy right now to let our prayer lives be dominated by supplication, um, asking God for things. God, cure COVID-19. Yes, by all means, we ought to be praying that prayer as believers, but let me just remind you this morning not to ignore adoration. The A, adoration. Spending time simply worshiping God 
for who he is in prayer. For his preeminence, for his creation, his creative power, for his power, for for being actively, dynamically involved, for his caring about us. Praise God for all of his divine perfections. Number two, we ought to let our worship of him cause us to become more aware of our own sin. The more that we behold God for all that he is in his word, the more we ought to become acutely aware of and convicted of just how short we fall. I am not preeminent. God is Alpha and Omega. Will Duvall is very finite. I will have a tombstone one day, and it will have dates on it. You will too. I am not the creator. He is. You want to talk about power? If, I, if we've learned anything these past few weeks, it should be just how little power and how little control we actually have in this world. And yet God has ultimate power. All power. He is dynamic. He's involved. He's caring in all these ways that I should be, but I fail to be. And so my worship of him for who he is leads me to conviction of sin about my own brokenness. And yet, thirdly, and finally, our awareness of our own sin ought to then drive us to appreciate even more deeply Christ's sacrifice for us. The bigger the gap gets between a holy, almighty, perfect, powerful, awesome creator God and a tiny, pitiful, pathetic, sinful, broken, needy me, the bigger my need for a Savior becomes to fill in that gap for me. And so praise God that he has provided just such a Savior in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And praise God that his cross is sufficient to bridge the gap for you and even for me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths of your word. We thank you that you are preeminent We worship a God who is worthy of all praise. That you are creator. You're you're worthy because you are the reason any of this exists in the first place. It exists by you and for you, from you, to you, through you. And so God, we worship you as preeminent, as creator, as powerful, as dynamic, as involved and caring. God, In all these ways, this morning, we want to just take time to worship you. Father, even as we worship you for who you are, we do become more aware of who we are and how not preeminent, how not uh, powerful and caring enough about this world that you care about so much we are. We we realize our fallenness, our brokenness. And so, Father, we pray. Prayer is not only of adoration, but of confession this morning. God, we need you. We are broken. We need you to come and be active and caring and dynamic in every aspect of our lives. God, we pray not only prayers of adoration and confession, but prayers of thanksgiving as well. Because... We pray knowing with full assurance 
that our prayers have already been heard and already been answered in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for such an all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins, for our fallen shortness of your glory and your majesty. God, thank you for Jesus. So God, if there's anyone here, even online, listening virtually this morning, maybe they're even tuning in to West Hills, they don't know anything about us as a church, doesn't matter. All they need to know is about you. They can pick up the same Bible we read and read it for themselves, your inerrant word. God, if, if there's anyone listening, watching in today who does not yet know you, not only as creator, not only as uh, all-powerful sustainer, not only as all-caring, loving uh, sustainer, but as savior. If there's anyone who does not know you as their Lord and Savior this morning and has not turned from their sin and repentance and trusted in you for the forgiveness of their sin, Father, I want to pray for that person this morning that even virtually right there at home, there's nothing magical about an in-person West Hills service. They don't need to be here in person. They don't need me to give them any magic words to pray. They can do that uh, from their own heart in their own way right now that they would confess that before you, their brokenness, their need for you, and get right with you by asking you to come and be their Lord and Savior and make your sacrifice in the person of Jesus uh, relevant, applicable, real, and, and, and powerful and saving over their own personal sins. Father, I pray that uh, for all of us, uh, regardless of whether um, that's a prayer we prayed this morning or a prayer we prayed decades, years and years ago, I pray that you would continue by the power of, of your same Holy Spirit to, to draw us deeper into relationship with you in these days and these weeks to come. And that in all of this, Father, you might get the honor and the glory and the praise we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.